Listeners, help you are not so smart stay free to download by completing a short anonymous survey. It'll take about five minutes and your answers will help match the show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of the podcast and its listeners. Uh, That's you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered into an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. And no one will share or sell your email address. The only email that you will get is the one that tells you that you've won. To do this, just please go to www.podsurvey.com slash yans. That's www.podsurvey.com slash y-a-n-s-s. There you will be able to take that survey and be entered into a monthly contest to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thank you. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 24. It's May 17th, 1985, and almost all of America, the ones watching TV at least, are gathered around their television sets watching Bobby Ewing say goodbye as his family is gathered around his deathbed after he has suffered massive injuries in a car accident. We could have each other. Now, behind the scenes, Patrick Duffy, the actor playing this character, is just ready to move on and try other things in the world of acting. So, as they do in dramas like this, they uh, they write him out of the show. And they let him die. next is one of the weirdest things that has ever happened in the history of television you see another season goes by it's 1986 and the people working behind the scenes of this show dallas which is basically a primetime soap opera about rich people in texas they realize the show is facing a serious problem after they've killed off bobby played by the dreamy patrick duffy who has gone on to pursue other things the ratings of the show have plummeted And they don't know what to do. And the only solution they can come up with is bring Bobby back. But the problem is he's dead. A whole seventh season of a Game of Thrones level political drama with all sorts of moves and plot developments and new characters, all of which depend on the fact that this guy is dead, has already aired to an audience of millions. So what do you do? Well, the solution they come up with is that uh, just pretend like it never happened. (laughs) Pretend like everything that's happened since his death didn't happen. And they simply had one of the characters on the show wake up and find Bobby safe and sound in the shower. And he just turns around and says, good morning. It was all a dream. The entire season had been all in her head, in her brain, in her skull, while she was asleep. Oh, wow. 
Oh, I love that music. You know, this was a really big deal when this happened. Dallas was the number one show in the United States. And a few seasons earlier, it aired what is still one of the most watched episodes of anything ever on television. The Who Shot JR episode brought in 90 million USA viewers and a total of more than 350 million viewers around the world. And pre-internet, every entertainment outlet wrote about the dream season. And it really twisted up the show. Some characters simply vanished, having never existed in this new timeline. All the plot developments unwound back to before the main character died. And going forward, all sorts of weird things happened in the plot that didn't make sense if you were to accept the seventh season was all a dream. It was a real mess. And it went down in TV history. And to some people, it's just the dumbest thing that's ever happened in a drama. But for others, it was a brilliant way to get five more years of people's attention. What's fascinating to me, though, is that it worked. Millions of people accepted it. It was all a dream. Sure, okay, I've had dreams like that. I've been relieved to wake up and find out that my husband was alive, or that I wasn't in jail, or that I wasn't actually back in high school late for class, and naked, and holding hands with a walrus. This, it was all a dream thing, is a really popular trope in fiction. It's also sort of the ultimate power play for a writer. After all, all fiction is a dream anyway. When you get down to it, it's a spell cast by a storyteller. And we all know it isn't real. But when we become completely transported into a fictional world, it's a beautiful, magical experience. And it's an enchantment cast by someone who has learned how to manipulate our minds. Revealing in a scene that the whole story was make-believe reveals the fourth wall without destroying it. It's sort of a shows that the meta-fantasy world can keep going. And it's dangerous because most fiction masters would tell you that you should avoid this because all the stakes, all the shared moments with the characters, all the emotions that you felt, it just seems to all get deleted. All that time invested in the story feels like a big waste once you tell the audience it never had any impact on the true, real, bigger story being told. But still, some people have done it well. Will you kindly pay attention and recite your lesson? Hmm? Oh, oh uh, how doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail and pour the waters of the... Alice, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry, but you see the caterpillar said... Caterpillar? Oh, for goodness sake. Alice, I... Oh, well, come along, it's time for tea. That was Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz, who both uh, really leaned on that. It was all a dream trope. But the television show in America that really one-upped Dallas was the Bob Newhart show. They went so far as to have Newhart wake up and the entire show had been a dream. You won't believe the dream I just had. Mm. But don't you want to hear about it? All right, Bob. What is it? Well, I, I was an innkeeper in this crazy little town in Vermont. I'm happy for you. No, nothing, nothing made sense in this thing. Now, this is not just a writerly trick. I don't think so. I mean, yes, it's a fun thing for people to do whenever they have complete control over another reality is to make it all be a dream or whatever, but I think it's bigger than that. I think 
we are still drawn to this trope, still use it in our fantasy and our fiction because sleep is something that's still behind the veil in our more rational, more secular world, sleep and dreaming. They're both part of a mysterious netherworld still, still wrapped in imagination, still part of the undiscovered country where you'll find death in the afterlife. We've long since discovered where lightning comes from and how hormones motivate lust. And that reveals the source of the powers of former gods, Zeus and Venus, and all the rest of them have fallen one by one under our microscopes and barometers. You know, they're just statues now. But of all the gods, the ones we've yet to actually fully usurp are Morpheus and Hypnos, Somnus and the Onery. I mean, we still make movies like Inception, and I'm not sure whether or not you would call that science fiction or fantasy. It's all mixed up together. And I think that's because sleep is still a dragon. It's a giant squid. It's a castle floating in the sky. Sleep, for many thinkers, is still the great mystery of what it means to be a person. Your most vulnerable moment every day is that nightly dive into the strange state of being, where in sleep you make a repeated voyage into the personal unknown, where you pluck and plunder whatever it is you are most comfortable calling that thing that makes you a person, a soul a consciousness, an electrochemical storm in a vat of blood and nervous tissue. Sleep is that time when you are closest to oblivion and the infinite, as those things are understood by humans. You are no more, and then you emerge whole, still clueless as to why and how and what all that even means. And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a new topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie. This episode is all about sleep. We know very little about it, but we do know some things about changing our behaviors and improving the quality of our sleep experience and getting the most out of the sleep that we do get. And for help on that, to better understand all that, our guest this episode is Richard Wiseman. And you've probably seen Richard before. You may be a big fan of him like I am, but he has a new book out called Night School, which is all about getting the most out of your sleep. And that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. Now, if you take a stroll through the scientific literature on sleep, you'll quickly begin to notice that the way scientists and researchers and journalists talk about it, it resembles the way that we used to talk about things like electricity or black holes back when those things were still mainly discussed in laboratories. Today, people installed the wiring to ceiling fans and they talk about black holes and McDonald's over fries and chicken nuggets. Yet sleep, something we do every day, something we take into account when planning schedules for pilots and surgeons, is still something over which scientists are hesitant to express any certainty. I mean, that's not to say that we haven't made a lot of observations. Lack of sleep affects your weight, your memory, your learning, and your ability to acquire new skills. It's involuntary. It proceeds in a reliable order of cycles and rhythms. And without it, you will die. <laughs> that's, that's right. If you stay awake for too long, as in weeks, you will die. And that's true of other things too. Mice that are never allowed to sleep, they eventually, they die. But what we still don't know is why? Why do we sleep? What is so great about sleep that it favored through natural selection those animals that routinely stopped moving and became seemingly unconscious and highly vulnerable for hours at a time? Now, my favorite hypothesis is that aside from all the brain and body maintenance that happens during sleep, um, that it evolved because it forces you to stop moving and seek shelter during times when you're most likely to get hurt or eaten. You remain alert enough to startle awake if something happens nearby but otherwise your metabolism drops and you go dormant until it's easier to see and hunt and forage and get around. But that's just speculation. And there are all sorts of other hypotheses that make just as much sense to save energy, to prune the brain, to clean out waste in your spinal fluid, to heal muscles and so on. But to illustrate how little we actually do know about that thing that we do for a third of our lives, consider these two quotes. William DeMint, former Dean of Sleep Studies at Stanford, a man with 50 years of research behind him, once told a reporter for National Geographic this, as far as I know, the only reason we need to sleep that is really, really solid is because we get sleepy. <laughs> and uh, 
The neuroscientist uh, Giulio Tonini, who studies sleep at the University of Wisconsin, said that um, he calls it the big enigma and one of the great unresolved issues in biology. And he once said at a conference of sleep scientists, quote, despite the extraordinary tools we now have to investigate it, we still don't know what it's for. In fact, we don't know if it's for anything really. So how can we get the most out of that time? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Richard Wiseman. I'm a big fan of Richard Wiseman. He blurbed one of my books, which blew my mind. And uh, that's because he holds Britain's only professorship in the public understanding of psychology at the University of Hertfordshire. And he researches all sorts of crazy things like luck. Man, I love his research into luck. One day we're going to do a whole episode about that. Um, deception, persuasion, and he's very active on YouTube where he makes these great short videos about fun things that you can do and learn about in psychology. Go to his website and you can find links to all of that stuff. Um, and this is true. He's the UK's most prolific creator of viral videos. He's also a consultant for Darren Brown and Mythbusters. And he's written a slew of great books about psychology like Quirkology and 59 Seconds. And before all that, he was a professional magician, which makes sense. If you spend a lot of time in the world of psychology or skepticism, you'll see that uh, there are a lot of people who became familiar with uh, magic and con artistry and uh, persuasion, uh, marketing, advertising. All those worlds sort of have a, a Venn diagram that overlap with, and pieces of them overlap with one another. Now, the Scientific American once described Richard Wiseman is the most interesting and innovative experimental psychologist in the world today. And his latest book is called Night School. And it's all about sleep, specifically how you can use the findings of science to improve your sleep life. So let's pick his brain. Um, so tell me about this new book that's coming out soon. Uh, night school. What is that all about? Oh, well, I'm very excited. Uh, it's it's uh, as you say, it's a new book, uh, and it's all about the science of sleep and dreaming. Um, and it it has its roots in my own experience because a few years ago I started having night terrors, uh, which I wouldn't recommend to people. Uh, they 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 live up, they live up to their uh, their name. Uh, in the sense, you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel an evil entity uh, in the room. Sometimes you scream and things like that. And the best part about them is the only mild, the amusing part that is, is that you wake up, if you're sleeping with somebody else, you wake them up. So I woke up my partner, Caroline, uh, and so she would think there's a, an actual person in the room and she started getting very excited and worried about that. And then because you're in stage four sleeps or deep sleep when you're having the night terror, you just go straight back to sleep and they're left uh, with the adrenaline rush uh, wide awake. So it's quite funny for you in the morning, um, but it's not quite so funny for them. Um, at the time. So I was having lots of night terrors and uh, so I started looking to the, uh, the psychology of sleep and I thought this is, this is very interesting and there's not a single book out there that uh, deals all the fascinating parts of it. So that, that's what night school does. Now, how, how old were you when you began having night terrors? Because that's something I always assumed that a person lived with for their entire lives. It sort of scares me that it could come on later on. Yeah, no, I, I had I had none of them as a kid. Um, I guess I was probably, uh, probably sort of early forties when I had them, and um, they went away pretty quickly. And they're they're sort of linked to anxiety, and they're linked to having a hot room and all that sort of thing. Um, but people have them a lot because I got quite into night terrors. There's all sort of group of of night terror people out there, and um, they you can always tell them because they never book in when they book into a hotel. They book into the lower floors of the hotel because they're worried they're going to jump out the window um, during their, their night terror. Uh, so often if you go into a hotel and you go into like, you know, just the ground floor or the first floor at night, you just hear the screaming coming from the rooms. Uh, and that's that's the night terror brigade that have all booked in en masse. Um, so yeah, they can come on and, you know, it's just one of those things that happen and, and mine's gone away um, pretty quickly. Um, so, but it does show you how much is going on in the brain at night. You know, you think you're dormant. And the one thing that I found out researching night school is that really isn't the case there's a huge amount going on in terms of uh, of sleep and dreaming uh, it's just another form of consciousness and and it's vital to our existence and and so it's nice to bring all that material together okay okay let's talk about some of that stuff let's from first of all i think one of the things i, I try to do on the show is is immediately 
bring to the attention of the audience that we have a lay person's understanding of, of things and there's a scientific understanding of things. So what, from a scientific perspective, what is sleep itself? Well, I, I don't know that we, we've got a, a sort of scientific definition of it. I mean, obviously, it's the loss of consciousness. Um, it is a complicated uh, phenomenon. It isn't just one entity. Uh, what's happening is you're drifting down from uh, waking state into very light sleep, stage one, stage two, uh, which is when you're doing some kind of consolidation of memory, you're getting rid of the day's memories you don't need and consolidating those that you do need. Then you drift down into deeper sleep, which is about really sort of the release of growth hormones is, is good for your body. And then, of course, the fun starts because that's when you go into dreaming and, and REM. Um, and that cycle from awake uh, through to the, the end of that first period of REM takes about 90 minutes and that's repeated several times throughout the night. So everyone dreams about five times. Those dreams when you wake people up in a sleep lab after they've experienced a dream are not particularly bizarre. In fact, most of the dreams are really very, very dull. Uh, we tend to think that dreaming is bizarre because those are the ones we remember. Um, so, so we go through these 90 minutes sleep, sleep cycles um, and, and then in the morning we wake up, we think nothing's happened. Uh, and in fact, if you deprive people of even an hour's sleep, you know, the, the physical effects, the psychological effects are absolutely disastrous over about a week or so. So it is vital uh, to life. But I don't think we have a, a sort of scientific understanding of, of what sleep is. We still really don't know quite why we spend so much time uh, asleep. There's a lot of debate about that. So to some extent, it, it's still a mystery. Mm -hmm. That's that's incredible because, um, you know, I know we spend like, if you live to age like 75, you'll have spent like 25 years of your life asleep. Um, mm -hmm. That's an incredible amount of time to do something that we're just sort of just scratching the surface of scientifically. Um, that's amazing it to me. How do you see that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so we put you know people on the moon. We can do all these amazing things. We could dive deep under the oceans, and yet we don't understand very much about what happens in this missing third of our life. You know, we we know that about a quarter of that time is spent dreaming. We don't understand dreams very much either. So you have this massive chunk where where, where psychologists and uh, uh, physiologists are kind of going, well, I don't really quite know. We we've got some clues as to to what's going on, but it, it is uncharted territory. And, and the bit we do know really comes from about the 1950s onwards. So it's, it's still recent knowledge. So it's so amazing that, that that's the case. There's a lot of speculation as to what is sort of the adaptive purpose of sleeping. What, what, do you, what is your personal speculation over, on that? <laughs> Well, I, I think it's it's clear that it has uh, effects in terms of, of getting rid of uh, memories that we don't need, as I say, and, and releasing growth hormone. Um, I think for me, when I was writing the book, what I became fascinated by was why do we dream? Because, it's, you know, dreaming is not far off a waking state. It's pretty much as, the brain is as busy when you're dreaming as, as when you're awake. And, of course, there's all these ideas that it's about predicting the future, and that's not true. Then there's a Freudian idea that's all about sort of repressed sexual thoughts, and that's not not true. Uh, it's just a lot more fun to, to read about. Um, and and it seems like, I mean, well, uh, the most fascinating thing that I thought about dreaming was when you wake people up at the, throughout the night in sleep labs and get them to report their dreams, those dreams start off really quite negative. Uh, in fact, the murder rate in your dream is, is higher than, than any city uh, in the world. You know, it's, 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 it's not a good place to be. Uh, but as the night goes on, emotionally, the dreams become more positive. And now there's a movement of psychologists that are saying that this is a bit like an inner therapist, that, that you're working through the day's anxieties, you're knocking the emotional edges off them, you're looking for unusual solutions and so on, and you're doing that unconsciously and that's what each dream is about. Uh, it's, it's that slow movement uh, as you work through your problems during the night. And that fits in with other work where if uh, you suffer from depression, you dream about five times as much as uh, non-depressives. So you know that there's a lot going on and and uh, night school is about unpacking that and trying to get into that that missing third of the life okay well let's let's get in there what what are some of the uh the big ideas of the book well the book says uh there is this chunk of missing time, how can you make the most of it? Uh, and so part of it uh, is about how you get a good night's sleep. And I, I like kind of quirky stuff. So in, in terms of how you get a good night's sleep, all the sort of straightforward psychology is in there in terms of getting rid of anxieties and um, 
you know, all the sort of brain games you can play to try and get yourself off to sleep. But then all the weird stuff is there. So there's an evolutionary approach to, to sleep, which says that you, you feel most restful when your bed is furthest from the door and facing the door, because that way, if there was some sense of threat comes into the room, you can spot it early and you've got time to run away. And so there's been these studies where they move people's beds around and, and see how they feel. So that, that stuff is in there. Uh, there's quite a lot of the effects of smell uh, on, uh, on sleep and particularly on dreaming. So I'm, I'm interested in dream manipulation. And one of the projects I was involved in a couple of years ago uh, was a, an iPhone app called Dream On, where we try and influence people's dreams yeah, during the yeah. night by playing in soundscapes so tell me, to, to, yeah tell me more about dream on i i remember uh hearing you speak about that in another interview and i was like this is one of the most insane ideas anyone's ever had <laughs> and, and they followed through with it what tell, yeah, I I, could, so could, could you sort of elaborate on what that is uh, I, yes. In fact, the follow-through is the interesting thing because I spoke to a couple of dream researchers before we did Dream On and I said, do you think this is going to work? And they just went, no. So I said, right, okay, That's that, thank you for your positive feedback and encouragement. Um, and it's that sort of thing, actually, that does encourage me more to get involved in a project. If they'd have gone, yeah, of course it will. I'd have gone, no, there's no point in doing it. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, Dream On uh, came about, uh, I met up with some uh, iPhone app people uh, called User, a uh, very good company, and they were interested in developing some kind of psychology app. And I'd just done a book called Paranormality, about the psychology of the paranormal, and I'd looked at whether or not people's dreams were influenced by stimuli during the night, um, and this was in the context of looking into the future. So the idea was you might hear a radio news item, and then you dream about that, and in the morning you think your dreams predicted the news. And I came across this literature, uh, mainly from the 70s, where they were playing in, in sleep labs a sounds when people were asleep, and lo and behold, about half the time it influenced people's dreams. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could actually manipulate that, if you could use that effect in a positive way? And so we created Dream On, the app, and people basically choose what kind of dream they want to have before they go to sleep. So you think, I might want to dream about a walk in the countryside or a stroll along the beach. And then the app targets the last dream you have before you wake up, because that's the one that um, influences daytime mood and it plays in very gently a, a soundscape that matches the dream you want to have and uh, so you know if you want to walk in the countryside it plays in you know birds sort of cheeping in the bushes and so on or it plays in waves if you want to go and walk on the beach and then in the morning uh, you're prompted to submit a report of your dream and we found uh, first of all that people are willing to do this we have about hmm. 10 million dreams which is fantastic oh, wow. Uh, so it's a huge database. And we've also found that early in the morning, uh, when you wake people up and ask them to type in their dream, uh, very few people can spell. It, it really is quite remarkable. Uh, so we, we've got all this sort of... Um, uh, free responses, as psychologists would refer to it, data, just sort of um, people typing stuff. And then we've had people go through a subset of those and code them and look at them in, in different ways. And the good news is it works. Um, you know, there's clearly a pattern there that people's dreams were influenced by the soundscape. So, um, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And because it, it then means, hold on a minute, there might be a clinical application here that we might be able to change the uh, emotional tone of people's dreams uh, and actually get them to wake up in a better mood and that's a, a humongous sample set to uh, to pull from <laughs> uh, millions of uh of responses what what are some of the surprising things you found in that data well there's one particularly surprising thing um yes in, yeah and so in terms of the the big surprise in the data we were looking at patterning uh, across the week, thinking maybe dreams at weekend to be a bit better than those during the weekday. Nothing there. Across the month, nothing there. Across the year, nothing there. And then a paper came out last year that showed the phases of the moon influence sleep and that when there was a full moon, uh, people had disrupted nights uh, sleep. And so we thought, let's just put that in. Let's just see whether that makes any difference. Put it in, bingo, a pattern drops straight out, which is when there's a full moon, people are having far more bizarre dreams. So we have, it's absolutely crazy. Um, 
we didn't go into the experiment expecting that pattern. It fits onto the uh, disturbed night in terms of uh, sleep, so it fits very nicely into the previous data set. And it seems that the phase of the moon affects people's dreaming, which is just a mind-blowing idea. Um, so it's and, and you need a huge data set in order to see that because obviously you have to map it uh, across the year. So we're very excited about that. That's great. Are they? Is it because? I mean, are they? Um are these people consciously aware of the phase of the moon? Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that was the argument with the original paper. The original paper was that uh, about sleep was that somehow you do know when it's a full moon uh, because it's lighter outside and that that's having some kind of effect uh, on the, the physiology. And, and of course, sleep is very heavily um, uh, dependent on light levels and, and it doesn't take much to disrupt um, the, the melatonin um, production. So, for example, you know, just working on a computer or looking at a smartphone uh, in the hour before you go to bed uh, is absolutely disastrous uh, for, for sleep. And we just carried out a survey in the UK uh, looking at, um, we looked at the 18 to 24 year old age group on the percentage of people that were exposing themselves to blue light uh, from those devices before they went to bed. Um, and it was 97% of people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th this is why there are so many sleep problems uh, out there. So, uh, yes, yeah, so sleep is heavily influenced by, by light levels. Um, and it, and it, the, the moon uh, does seem to, to influence sleep. And we've seen then that it's supposed to have a knock-on effect and also influence dreaming. Um, and that's why I find this stuff so interesting. As you, you said, you know, very few people have done this kind of work. Right. And, and it sounds like you can fiddle around with that, uh, that app whenever you need to, to try to drive more data from it in different, from different directions. That sounds like a really interesting way to do research. I, I think it is. I mean, throughout my whole career, I've always chosen unusual methods uh, in terms of data collection. Um, I think it's about half a million people have downloaded the app and it is, it is free um, to, to do that. Uh, and it, it is great. And, and now I think we're going to concentrate more on trying to get people to have positive dreams. I just like this idea that's, that you can influence people's mood uh, by giving them a more positive dream uh, before they wake up. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So, um what are some really common misconceptions about sleep that uh, you could help debunk for us right here? Well, we've already touched on a couple. So the, a lot of people think they never dream, and that simply isn't true. It's just they don't remember their dreams. Um, people think they don't wake up during the night. Uh, in fact, there's probably five or six micro-awakenings. If you have uh, sleep apnea, which is a breathing um, uh, disorder, then that could go up to you know, 100, 200 uh, micro-awakenings, uh, which can be very, very disruptive. Uh, lots of people think that if they have a little glass of wine before they go to bed, that will help their sleep. And to some extent, that's true in that you fall asleep quicker, but then it's very disruptive. You spend less time in deep sleep and uh, dreaming is, is disrupted. So uh, um, it's, it's not a good thing to be doing. So all that kind of myth busting uh, is, uh, is in the book as well. And, and it's kind of interesting because lots of the things I came across, I thought, my goodness, you know, that those are things that I do. I, I worked on a computer and I, um, you know, I, I've been known to have a half a glass of wine before going to bed. And, and you just think, my goodness, the research is out there everywhere. One should know this stuff. Yeah. And you, uh, I read a little bit about your book and you mentioned something called sleep learning, which I think I had always thought was absolutely uh, complete hogwash. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm betting you're going to tell me that it's not. Well, it, it is and it isn't. Um, the original, uh, the history, history of sleep learning is interesting. The original work uh, was about trying to learn a foreign language uh, in your sleep. And that's just not going to work. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, it's too cognitively demanding. But uh, if you play in music whilst you're revising, if you're taking an exam or something, and uh, you play in a particular piece of music, you then play that music when the person is asleep, it seems to somehow uh, reactivate the memory circuits associated with the material, and that definitely does help you. So it's a slightly more sophisticated take on um, the idea of sleep learning, and and so and one that seems to be quite effective. And so you know, to some extent, sleep learning isn't true. And in another way, in a more sophisticated way, actually, it's very effective. Mm -hmm. And um, if you were, if someone was just going to try to come away with some easy, simple advice as to how to get a better night's sleep from, from a psychological perspective, what would you say to that person? Well, it, it's slightly complicated because it depends what the problem is. So if they are having difficulty falling asleep, 
Then there's a couple of really neat little uh, psychological tricks. One is to try and tire and distract your brain uh, by thinking, for example, of an animal for every letter of the alphabet. And, and so it's a very distracting thing to do and it, it means you're not uh, focusing on your anxieties. Another is to come up with a very positive scenario and imagine it in as much detail as possible. Um, and lots of what I call super sleepers, and these are people I interviewed for the research, um, who can just, you know, turn on sleep at a moment's notice whenever they want, they frequently use that technique uh, of just thinking about something very, very pleasant. And it also helps with, uh, with dreaming. If the problem is that they're waking up in the middle of the night, one of the things they mustn't do is lay in bed awake for more than about 10 minutes because then they start to associate the bed with being uh, awake. You're much better off getting out of bed, low light and doing something sort of taxing, but not too taxing or too stimulating. So, uh, for example, just working on a, a jigsaw is absolutely ideal. Work on a jigsaw for 20 minutes until you start to feel drowsy and then go back to bed. Um, so these kind of very simple interventions have a, have a surprisingly large effect. Yeah, I think my biggest problem sleeping, I think this is true for a lot of people, is is usually I can go to sleep pretty easily, but it's when you get in that loop of worrying about something and thinking about a problem that, that you uh, want to take care of the next day or there's some sort of um, a series of things that are giving you anxiety and you can't stop replaying them. They feel like a loop over and over again. I'm thinking the same five things over and over again and I can't seem to break out of it and think about something nice and just drift away. It's yeah. So there's a few things there. One is obviously to make a list of them. So because sometimes people are anxious, they're going to forget what they need to do the next day. The other is to practice uh, the idea of letting them drift through your head and out the other side, rather than focusing uh, on them. Uh, so there are a few little sort of tricks uh, like that. Um, but of course, it also can work to your advantage. So I was uh, one uh, speaking to a um, a guy that was a toy inventor the other day, and he said, oh, for years when he got a prototype of a toy. He would tie it to his wrist before he went uh, to sleep because then he would feel it during the night and he'd work on the problem. And he said time and again he'd wake up with the perfect toy uh, in his head. So in a, in a sense, it's sort of reframing that anxiety and the fact that you are thinking about it in a positive way and thinking actually that's my brain working on the problem and maybe in the morning hopefully there'll be a solution. That is amazing. Um Dreaming and sleep, it just uh, to me, they feel like they're fundamental questions about what we are, why we have a, you know, what is our brain, how does it work, what is consciousness, and it feels like it's when you decide, okay, for there's a certain period of time every day that I'm going to go unconscious or have a different kind of consciousness, and then have these mass these massively insane hallucinations, and then get up the next day and then go about my business. It's like you. It's a part of our lives that we have to accept is just completely bizarre and insane. And we have to whistle and go about our business as if that doesn't happen every night. Um, do you feel like there's progress being made uh, uh, in sort of cracking the case of what is sleep and what is dreaming? Or is that really, is, is that really a strange question that I'm asking? I'm asking a question that really doesn't need to be asked. What do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert on consciousness. I'm sure they get very excited uh, about sleep and dreaming. I do think what's really bizarre is that if we didn't sleep and we didn't dream and then somebody said, hey, look, I've got this fun park or something where you, you come along and you drift safely, completely safely out of consciousness for hours and you have these amazing, fantastic adventures where you can fly and you get attacked by zombies, everyone would be queuing up. You know, the, <laughs> that place would be packed. And yet because it's just part of what we do every day, you know, it's the habituation effect. We get used to it and we don't celebrate it. And we should be celebrating it. We should be going, we do this amazing thing every single night of our lives. And to some extent, we have an understanding of now of, of how it works. And, and it is amazingly predictable in terms of the uh, the sleep cycle. And, and I just think that's the bit that we should celebrate, the, the fact that <laughs> we're so weird. You imagine, I don't know, an alien coming down from another planet and, you know, uh, a certain time during the day, everyone just falls over and goes unconscious. <laughs> and all this weird stuff happens then they get back up and carry on you know the alien will be thinking what is going on and and, and we're just so used to it so i, I think it's that it's, it's the, the 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 sort of beauty the, the the wondrous nature of sleep i think we should be celebrating uh-huh i love it and i think that sleep is uh really was really fun dreaming was really fundamental in in giving birth to psychology itself because it's like the the first mystery that you want to get to is what is this why is this happening 
Um, I, I, absolutely. And in fact, the, Joseph Jastrow, who's one of my heroes, a founding father of experimental psychology, one of his first projects was actually on the dreams of the blind. So he went out and interviewed blind people uh, about their dreams. And uh, if they have lost their sight uh, before the age of around about seven, um, there's no visual element to their dreams at all. Uh, if they've lost their sight after that, then their dreams are, are very similar to sighted people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very curious thing. It's been with us for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. And it seems it seems common across mammals and other animals too. Um, and I often think, you know, what is if you know how obviously this is fundamental because it's shared across so many species. And how different is what's happening in a human's sleep and dream than what's happening, you know, say when you know you can't help but watch your dog or your cat sleep and dream? Is like how how specifically human is my sleep, and how but and how much of it is more fundamental, like say a yawn, you know, or or a, a reflex action? Uh, do you think that there's something fundamentally human about the way humans sleep or is it something more primal than that? I don't know. You're right to say that um, uh, most of the animal kingdom uh, does sleep. I've avoided animals in the book. Um, I'm not very good either with animals or on animals. I, 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 <laughs> I hate that's, it. That's, that's, the, that's my quote for this episode. <laughs> I'm not good with animals or on animals. Um, I, I didn't like biology uh, when I was uh, a student. I don't like biological psychology. I just get confused. And it seems to me that animals are at that end of the spectrum. And so there's all this stuff about dolphins sleeping with one hemisphere and then keeping the other one awake and, and, and so on. And it is interesting stuff. Uh, but I thought, you know what, I'll leave that to someone else. Somebody who gets on better with animals. Um, I, I, I don't like zoos. Uh, I, I went to the zoo the other day and I just wanted to let all the animals out uh, so they could just play with one another. It would have ended in disaster. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I like dogs, um, but it, and they dream. But I, I can't believe a dog dream is the same as a human dream. I can't believe they're sort of thinking about, oh my goodness, we're, I'm flying now and now I'm getting chased by zombies or whatever it is. I oh. think they're just after food. That's, that's yeah. what I think is going on. I would love to. I would love to see a dog <laughs> dreaming that it's flying because that would be amazing. Um, that's the, maybe the best dream. Um, what um, one? Let me ask one last question about sleep and dreaming specifically, and that is, um, I think a lot of people at, like to wonder about this. Why is it so difficult to recall my dreams? They seem very vivid right when I wake up, and sometimes I think that they were amazing and I try to tell my wife how amazing the adventure was. Then I start to realize that I'm telling her something that makes absolutely no sense. And it is also very boring to hear. Mm. But then uh, as a, as the hours go by, I start to feel it slipping away like sand through your fingers. It just starts to, to disappear from your, from your consciousness. And I can't keep it as a memory unless I write it down. Uh, what's going on there? I, again, I'm not certain that we we know. Uh, you do tend to remember dreams if you're woken up about sort of seven to ten seconds after they've ended. Um, it's not an exact science, and not all REM rapid eye movement periods are associated um, with with dreaming. We do know that again, dreams are heavily involved in memory formation, and so it could be that somehow uh, that, that they're not there to be remembered as experiences. They're more like a sort of transient uh, experience, and and so you're sort of forcing something to be remembered that isn't designed, as it were, um, to be remembered. What, what I do know uh, is that as a psychologist, uh, so I, I'm, my background's in what's called parapsychology, psychology of the paranormal. And so I used to go to parties and it was the, I don't know, I still do go to parties actually, um, but I used to go to parties and people would say, oh, you're a parapsychologist. They'd tell me their paranormal experience. It is the dullest thing in the world. And so they go, oh, you must be fascinated. And they're going to a long-winded thing. And I just want to leave uh, that point and, uh, and and go and play with a dog or something. And uh, I was thinking about the dogs, actually, because it would be quite good. I don't know if people have done this. Maybe dog owners do this. Is try and influence their dog's dreams when their dog's dreaming. Like if you made a sort of cat sound, I wonder uh, whether the dog would then start to dream about um, uh, cats. So it could be quite a, a sort of new application for dream on. Dream on for dogs. That's See, where I was going with it. That's, that's what I would... Now you're going into mad scientist territory, and that's great. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, so I used to go there at parties and people would tell you paranormal experiences. And then I got more into mainstream psychology, so they didn't do that. But now I've realized I'm into sleep and dreaming. You go there and people tell you their dreams. It's even oh, yeah. worse than the paranormal experiences. <laughs> oh boy, never tell anyone your dream. It's, yeah, it's that's the good. dullest thing. I didn't figure that out for way too long, but yes, don't. <laughs> 
Don't tell people about your dreams. All you have to let once you hear five people tell you their dreams, you will realize you should never do that to anyone else. No. Um, and I imagine that that. Um, but when you look through the um, the Dream On app and you look at people's uh, uh, when they explain their dreams to you, does is there? Do you ever once in a while come across something that just absolutely shocks you that somebody would have dreamt something like that based off of how you had set it up? Um, not especially because they're all quite uh, bizarre. My favorite ones are often we have people who use the app a lot, the same person over time. And so sometimes um, we've only got a few like this in the database, but they're, they're like gold dust. Um, their dreams are like a soap opera. They, they return to the same scenario. So there's one woman that's been having an ongoing affair with George Clooney throughout the whole of Dream On. And, and you, you sort of look forward to that coming up in the database. Think, I wonder what happened last night. Uh, so, um, so that's kind of fun. Uh, but the, the, the rest of it, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's as dull as being as a party where everyone wants to tell you their dream. <laughs> um, I, uh, I know I said I had one last question, but I just remember that I really wanted to ask you this. And by the way, I have that same phenomenon. I, I, I have several dreams that, are, that seem to be a, a series or that I have dreams that t- tend to be um, the same location, the same physical geographical location I will return to over and over again, even though I've never actually been in that location. So that's a strange phenomenon that I also share. Um, but is there, do you mention lucid dreaming in the book at all? Uh, it's a bit like animals. It, it is in the book, um, but I'm not big on it because I've never had a lucid dream and it's really hard to get people to, to do lucid dreaming. And so, as with all my books, I tend to include exercises that pretty much everyone can do. So, I think there's about a third of a chapter on lucid dreaming. I do talk about some of the techniques and I talk about if you're having a lucid dream or you think you are, some of the tests you can do, the reality testing. So, for example, uh, if you look into a mirror, you normally don't see a reflection in a lucid dream because it's, it's just too much for the brain to, to create that. Um, you, you, for, you can't turn lights on uh, very easily in a lucid dream. So some of that uh, is in there. Of course, what is interesting is some of the work where uh, the lucid dreamers, people who can do, uh, can produce the experience, uh, will almost, are asked to meet certain people uh, in their lucid dream and interview them. And so there's been work where you send them off and they try and find somebody who speaks a language that they themselves don't speak. And they ask ask for certain words in that language and that's been a complete disaster that, that's, that's right. never emerged in a lucid dream but often they, they, they're sent out to try and find the best mathematician in their lucid world and then ask increasingly difficult uh, mathematical questions to that person and it turns out that even the best mathematician in a lucid world can only do very very simple addition they can't do any more than that and that stuff's really weird because it's you know all these lucid dreamers around the world are then feeding their results back independently um, and so that I love that technique because it's so strange and so quirky what a weird way to get into to what's going on in a lucid uh-huh. dream yeah I've often wondered if because I've had dreams where like I'm playing poker for example and I'm with other people and I'm asking I'm wondered when I woke up was I really playing the game or was I just tricking myself into thinking I was keep because the fascinating thing would be if am I actually keeping up with five other in, you know sub entities mm-hmm. inside my mind's cards and having all of them not tell each other what their cards are and play and and I was I've often wondered was it just the illusion that this was t- taking place and then when I wake up I'm like wow that's an amazing thing the mind can do or really if you were able to dig in and watch what was going on it was just a simplified version of the scenario and nothing was really actually happening that was fantastic <laughs> And, and, of course, the interesting question there is, is how would you t- t- find that out? How would you try and tease that apart? I don't know quite what the, the solution would be. Um, I mean, certainly I've woken up, uh, I haven't had a lucid dream, but I've woken up with fully formed solutions to problems. Uh, in, in fact, actually, some of the Quirkology clips, I've woken up completely formed in my head, uh, and where obviously I've been working on them during the night. I've gone to sleep thinking of a particular problem, woken up, and every second of the footage, you know, every camera shot and everything is completely in my head. Um, and, and so that notion that we are doing a lot more than we think we're doing uh, is absolutely true. And, and so the, the book is about sort of trying to harness that power. Well, I could obviously talk to you about this forever, and I, I'm deeply fascinated with your work on luck, I and mean, we'll just have to save that for another time. Um, but I do want people to have the chance to uh, discover all the things you have out there for them to enjoy. So uh, could you sort of tell people where they can find you and what sort of things you have floating around on the internet? 
Um, well, I have a, a, a Twitter, the Twitter, as I refer to it. Uh, I'm at Richard Wiseman. Uh, and then on YouTube, um, there's two channels I have now. One is Quackology, which has been there for a long time and it's uh, all about uh, illusions and magic. And then more recently, uh, a channel called In 59 Seconds, uh, which are 59 second long videos about things you can do to improve your life. So um, that's the, the best, best place to, uh, to find me. Come and find me there. Come and say hello and <laughs> tell me about uh, your dog's dreams in as much detail as possible. I love that. <laughs> wow. I, uh, I hope you do this, everyone out there. Please give him dog dreams. <laughs> And perform the cat experiment. Put the app on. I'm sure sure they they make dog headphones. So try the app out on the dog and see what you get. What do you Um, mean? But dogs sort of, they look like dreaming because their little paws go, don't they? And things like that. And then, and if you made like a cat sound, the question is then, do the paws go completely mad? Um, (laughs) Or or what happens? I think we need to do that experiment. We need to film it and get it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Frontiers of science. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Richard, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And now we take a break from our show to self-promote. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is so very proud to be part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You know Boing Boing. It's an amazing website that has all sorts of super cool stuff where happy mutants bounce around the internet and other places and talk to interesting people and see interesting things. You can find it at boingboing.net. And over there, you'll find all sorts of podcasts. If you click on podcasts that are part of the Boing Boing family. And one that I think that you would really like is Futility Closet. It's just really got started. It's about uh, 10 episodes in. And every episode is uh, it's hosted by Greg and Sharon Ross. And it's a celebration of quirky and curious, thought-provoking and amusing things uh, from history and beyond. It's, um, it's really, really cool. The recent episode, like for instance, um, was all about what they call the monkey signal man. Um, and it's about a South African railway worker named James jumper wide, um, who had a baboon named Jack, uh, that he taught to work as a signal man on the railway line. Uh, and everyone just sort of went along with it. So, uh, you really should check it out. There's even pictures of this baboon working the signals. And that's sort of what you'll get in every episode of Futility Closet. Another one of the uh, Boing Boing podcasts, like You Are Not So Smart, that I think you would really enjoy. Also, head to youarenotsosmart.com to find merchandise like confirmation bias t-shirts and Benjamin Franklin effect t-shirts. Uh, also, I have a Benjamin Franklin effect coffee mug that I personally enjoy. I made it just for myself. Uh, but you can get one there too. You can also check out both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, and watch videos that we've made over the years about all sorts of interesting psychology stuff, articles that I've written um, that are longer and more in-depth than what we usually go into in the podcast. And you can keep up with, um, not only can you keep up with the podcast there, but you can check all of the previous episodes at youarenotsosmart.com. In addition, you can connect to us socially through Facebook and Twitter and uh, Pinterest and all those other things on Twitter. It's at not smart blog on Facebook. It's you are not so smart and pretty much everywhere else. It's you are not so smart. So just go to you are not so smart.com to learn more about the podcast to which you are listening. And now we return to our program. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study right after I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, I'm going to send you, this is new, a confirmation bias t-shirt. Oh yeah, you're going to get one. I'm just going to send you a large and uh, you'll just have to figure out what to do with that if you are smaller or larger than large. But these confirmation bias t-shirts, they're so cool. I commissioned an artist that I love. His name is Kyle Hilton to make these. And uh, I love them. I love these 
t-shirts. I want you to have one. I want to see them everywhere. I want people to go, what's that? And then you'll point it out. You'll use the shirt to teach them a lesson. Um, and not only will you win that, but I will post the recipe just like I posted all the previous recipes and the winner and the photos of the cookie and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week's recipe comes from Edward Eads, who submitted what he called a recipe for happiness. Quote, that's what he said. And he calls these cookies Sally cookies. He said in his email, very strange email, I, uh, about um, this person named Sally, who is a member of his extended family and has been cooking for 40 years for him and other people. And he estimates that she's baked 75,000 cookies, but, but he believes the number is much larger. And he says that uh, she sort of has perfected a very specific kind of oatmeal cookie. And he sent me the recipe. So these are called Sally cookies and they use butter and margarine and sugar, eggs and vanilla extract, wheat flour, white flour, rolled oats, um, all sorts of other stuff. We made these in two different forms. One is the regular oatmeal cookie and the other is an oatmeal cookie with cranberries in it. Now I am going to try, you can hear me reaching for it now, just the straight up oatmeal version. Um, and these actually are, uh, there were a lot of ingredients and a pretty simple recipe, but it looks like, yes, this may have been, someone may have perfected the oatmeal cookie. We're going to find out right now. So I have my tea. I have this cookie. Let's see what Sally's got. Hold on. Here we go. Sally cookies. Um, mm-hmm. you know, at first you think these are really not that big of a deal, but then after you get through the outer crispy, crunchy layer and you start to, uh, explore the fluffy tenderness on the inside, you realize that this is probably the first oatmeal cookie I've had that actually kind of tastes like I'm eating a bowl of oatmeal in the middle of my cookie. Like it's, it's kept its moisture, you know, moisture on the inside of your food, not always a desirable quality, but here, yes, it is indeed. I feel like there's a bowl of a tiny bowl of oatmeal that is being served to me by my mama on the inside of this cookie. And I like that. I'm going to do it again. Here we go. Oh, Sally. Thank you. Thank you for making me cookies and convincing Edward Eads that this was a recipe for happiness. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to eat more oatmeal cookies. Mm. Um. Yeah. Okay. Do this. I, I am happy to be one of those people who's tried a variation, um, an offshoot of these 75,000 cookies, uh, possibly more, that Sally has created and that Edward could not get out of his mind. So thank you very much, Edward. This was a recipe for happiness. I am happy to be part of your tradition. Thank you very much. And if you want this recipe, just head to youarenotsosmart.com or the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page, and Edward, we will send you a shirt. I hope you wear it to the next family gathering when you make and eat these cookies. So let's talk about a little self-delusion news. Now, when I saw this in the news, I knew that this was going to be what we're going to talk about in the next episode. Uh, I first saw this at a website called nationaljournal.com, uh, and the headline was, Average Americans Think They're Smarter Than the Average American, which is something that uh, I I say things like about this all the time in my lectures and in articles and in the books and everything. Uh, because it's true. The average person believes that they are smarter than the average person. And um, I'm not sure who said that, who's the first person to say that. I've seen that quoted in a couple different places. But the science, uh, the evidence suggests that this is very much true. Now, there are cultural variations to this uh, way of seeing the world. But um, definitely in the West, definitely in, in the modern United States, um, most people believe that uh, if everything is distributed along uh, one of those bell curves, with the big fat part is the average person that they are not there, that they're a little bit over in the extraordinary side and not over in the less than average side of that distribution. So this comes from a survey done by YouGov, a research organization. Um, and 
over on their website. You can find it. It's uh, today.yougov.com. Uh, and the name of the, uh, the release that gave this information to all the news organizations was America the Intelligent by Peter Moore. And uh, reading from it right now, it says, most Americans think they are smarter than the average person, while richer Americans are more likely than others to say that the country as a whole is unintelligent. So there's a couple of things in here that are very interesting. The first part, though, is, is pretty simple. Uh, this poll done by YouGov showed that uh, 55% of Americans think that they are smarter than the average American. And they say, it's so fun to say this, everybody uh, says it in a different way. Uh, YouGov uh, says, quote, this meaning that the average American thinks that they are smarter than the average American, end quote. Uh, in addition to that, a third of the country, 34%, uh, they believe that they are, that they're probably average. So about one out of three people has, has a, a, um, admirable humility about them, but only 4% of people say that they are less intelligent than the average American. So the, one of the takeaways here is that, uh, if you are not average, if you are below average, there's a very small chance that you will actually believe that's true. Um, and What's even further interesting about this research is that they showed that uh, the more uh, education that a person has received and the more money or, or the more money that they make, the more they think that everybody else in the world is an idiot. So um, above $100,000 a year in the United States as a household income, they believe that about 36% of um, the rest of the people in the country are stupid. And, but if you make less than $40,000 a year as an entire household in the United States of America, you tend to believe that 20% of the rest of the country is an idiot. So, uh, there's a definite variation there. The more money you make, the more you tend to believe that everybody in the whole country is an idiot, but you're not because, Hey, look at all this money I make. Now there's a lot of research into this. This is not the first time this sort of uh, research has been conducted and it's true in big groups and in small groups. And one of the things I thought was really funny about this is that on the actual page at YouGov, if you look in the comment section, which is usually, uh, no matter what website you go to a horrible cesspool of people snorkeling through poo poo. Um, <laughs> this is a, the people in here are doing exactly what the study says that people do. Everybody in here is talking about how, oh yeah, people in America are idiots. You know, if you have a bachelor's degree, isn't even as worth as much as a rubber rubber. And, um, they're all acting like they're intelligent and everyone else is an idiot. And they're having this, uh, this wonderful, uh, um, session where they make each other, uh, feel like they're the only people who have it figured out. I love it. Check out the comment section. If you have, if you have the stomach for it, but lest you get, uh, a little uh, huffy over the fact that you're not from the United States. Um, someone on Twitter sent me this uh, other article that I thought was a great uh, companion piece to the last thing I just told you. Uh, this comes from The Independent. Uh, you can find it at independent.co.uk, and the headline is British Public Wrong About Nearly Everything Survey Shows, which is a <laughs> really great uh, British headline. I love it. Uh, British public wrong about nearly everything. So they shows, um, the research showed that, um, on a variety of issues, the public's, um, assumptions, they're like, uh, their gut feelings, the, uh, their intuitive sense of the issue is way, way off. For instance, uh, in the article, it says that benefit fraud, uh, something that people in the UK think about a lot. Um, the public thinks that 24 pounds out of every 100 pounds of benefits is fraudulently claimed. Uh, but the official estimates are actually, it's just 70 pence in every 100 pounds, much, much less than people thought. Uh, in fact, they calculated it here in the article. The public conception is, is off by a factor of 34. Um, concerning immigration, 31% of uh, the population, um, mo most UK people believe it is uh, a recent immigrant, but the actual number is somewhere around 11, 10, 11%. So also way off there. Uh, crime, and this is something that's true everywhere. Um, in the UK, 58% of people do not believe that crime is falling, but everywhere in the United States, in the UK, wherever the, uh, the entire planet is more peaceful than it's ever, ever been. Crime is on a steep, steep decline across the entire globe. Um, and in the UK, uh, crime is down by 19%, um, in 2012 versus 2006 and 53% down from the from the levels it was at in 1995, 
but uh, half of the population in the UK believe that crime is actually rising when it's actually falling. And that's also true in the United States. It's something that I'm going to write about in the future uh, on, on the website. It's called the mean world syndrome. And it, pretty much what it comes down to is that um, your intuitive sense of how dangerous the world is around you, how crime ridden it is, uh, is directly correlated to how much news you watch. So the more informed you think you are when it comes to crime and violence, the actual, uh, the worse you are at having a true intuitive sense of how much crime and violence there is. So the more input, the crappier your output when it comes to that particular issue. And then it goes on to say like teen pregnancy, um, people in the UK believe it's 25 times higher than it actually is. Uh, the majority of people said it was a 15% of girls under 16 are getting pregnant and the actual figure is 0.6%. And uh, it just goes on from there. Uh, and it, at least on the things that they uh, asked about, the British public is wrong about nearly everything. And the uh, people in the United States, the majority of people believe they're smarter than the majority of people. So um, I think it paints a wonderful picture of what we always talk about here on You Are Not So Smart, is that uh, self-delusion is just part of being a human being. And it's as natural as fingers and toes. And so um, we celebrate self-delusion and uh, I love when articles like this come out because they demonstrate that no matter how educated we become, how wealthy we become, or um, how prolific our access to uh, information through the internet uh, gets, we're not going to be able to stop ourselves from thinking these ridiculous things. And we should build a world that takes that stuff into account, just like we have to take into account sleep. Uh, you know, we don't expect airline pilots and surgeons and uh, anyone else to be able to operate forever without sleeping. So we build a world around it. And just like, uh, just like sleep, all these biases and delusions and fallacies and heuristics, they're part of the human mind. You can't get rid of them. So we just have to build a world around them. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. A new episode comes out every two weeks, and uh, the next episode should be about enclosed cognition. Um, you can find links to everything that we talked about every single time at youarenotsosmart.com. For each episode, there are show notes with links to the sources of all the information that we discuss. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. All the music beds are by Drew Garraway, who teaches at Full Sail. And uh, go to boingboing.net for more great podcasts.